Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My name is Toby Miller, and my guest today is... Norman Ajari. Prof Ajari, it's a great pleasure to meet you. Thank you very much. And thank you for accepting the presence of the podcast in our thank conversation. You. Uh, I'm really excited to, to talk. And I wanted to start, if I could, by asking you what is interesting you, worrying you, preoccupying you, dynamizing you right now, these days. Well... I am always, because I hold a position which is quite unusual uh, in Francophone Black Studies. That's like, I'm a lecturer in Francophone Black Studies at the University of Edinburgh, so that's the, that's the title. I think it's, it's pretty unique. <laughs> and I'm always in the process of discovering or rediscovering or rereading under new light some authors from this tradition, Black authors, Black authors that who wrote their books or speeches in French. And something that I found particularly interesting preparing a course for this year is um, my rereading, so to speak, in a more complete fashion of an author, which is very often cited or even mentioned, um, but not very often discussed um, thoroughly. And her name is Paulette Nardal. Uh, Paulette Nardal, who is uh, from Martinique in the Caribbean, and who is often recognized or defined as one of the early proponents of this very famous movement named as Negritude, right? The Negritude movement, this movement in the uh, interwar period in France who sort of reinvented Blackness, reinvented the fact of being Black as not being something to be ashamed of, as not something to be, um, not not a mark of dehumanization or subhumanity, but rather a mark of civilization and belonging to a greater history and stuff. And Paulette Nardal is interesting because she was this woman who was for a very long time regarded as a person without crucial importance within this process, within this history. And there has been this attempt at rehabilitating her in a way, which is particularly fine, but I think the way it has been actually you have many papers or discussion, newspaper articles or magazine articles in magazine. We have rediscovered this very interesting figure, this very interesting early feminist figure. But I think those people didn't really is right uh, because and this is why I think rediscovering is very interesting if you actually read Paulette Nardal you discover a figure very different from um, your average negritude author uh, like of course Aimé Césaire or even Senghor because she's a very white right-wing Christian Catholic conservative she is arguing in favor of creating in Martinique a very strong black patriarchy. She is advocating or uh, inviting um, what she calls une police des mœurs, which is basically a vice squad in America, right? uh, squad within the police specialized in uh, tracking down prostitutes, drug users, things of that sort. And she explicitly says that 
in place of social services. So you have a very, very strange um, way of, at the same time, advocating for whose vote, but as a tool of create Black patriarchy. And I'm really interested in that um, because it really points to the complexity of our of, of the black intellectual traditions, political traditions, right? Um, or reinventing the black race, but at the same time, the way of black radicalism or the way of pan-Africanism is not necessarily the only way to achieve this goal. It can very be through a sort of very conservative form of regime in the Caribbean that waiting for, and especially within, within the state, within the of the French Empire was also crucial. And this is something that is very, very often overlooked in the scholarship of that I was um, very fascinated with uh, preparing this Uh, folks, we just had a little interruption there because of a problem with the connection between Norman and, and myself. Uh, Norman, you were telling us about both the way in which the story of Paulette Natal is told in a way that is rather ahistorical, but also the way in which it can shed light on a variety of histories and ways of trying to achieve a form of negritude. Do I, did I have that right? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And I think it is also connected to the history, the political history of Martinique after its independence, um, because MSZ was for a very long time, uh, at first, the communist mayor and member of the parliament for Martinique. Um, But the first time he was elected, he was running... He was opposing um, a right-wing party, and that's the right-wing party Paulette Nardal was actually campaigning for. Okay, <laughs> and this very simple. This is a very and, and she was in sort of in an underground in an underground way leading the uh, women arm of this political movement, this right-wing political movement in Martinique, and this is a part of history that, that we often overlook. And I think there are two reasons for that. First, I think because we are in need for um, those feminist heroes so that when we see a prominent woman, we want to um, classify them as feminists because it confirms some contemporary, more contemporary forms of political agendas and and, and um, projects that we have. And at the same time, because we do not really want to acknowledge the variety and the oppositional dynamics within Black political history, especially when we have two figures that connect like to the same cultural movement, but we do not acknowledge that politically in terms of what they have to say about class, what they have to say about political projects, what they have to say about education. They have really diverging point of view. And, and I think this really does disservice to the history of Black thought and African thought and Caribbean thought to the writing of this history if we try to encompass all those ideas under the same umbrella just because they we are aiming at the most, the smallest common denominator that, that is to say all those people acknowledge that Black people were not monkeys, were not dehumanized beings, therefore they are part of the same, of the same group, they're part right. of the same movement, but it, it's actually not the case. There are way, way more important and decisive elements of their thought, of their, 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 their intellectual trajectories that we should uh, 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 examine first. 
I think that's a wonderful point, and I'm just very conscious of the fact, Norman, that when I was first introduced to the ideas of negritude, it was exclusively through Aimé Césaire and, I guess, Léopold Songor also. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, I, I'm in that sense, that tradition was very limited in the way I was exposed to it, the way I understood it. And I wonder if we could lead off from that into talking about a concept that's very important in, in your work and uh, is very striking in your, your new book, Darkening Blackness, um, which is to talk about Afro-pessimism. And I, I wonder if you might speak a bit about that, because it seems to me that one of the pressures of things like negritude as an ideology, as a philosophical practice, as an artistic practice, is that whilst it acknowledges problems, it has utopia and hopefulness and so on. And I think you're challenging that, as are other philosophers, with the concept of Afro-pessimism. So could you outline a little bit for us the importance of that concept and what it's kicking against, in a sense? Yes. So I think to put things in their context, mm -hmm. uh, we have a specific notion of Afro-pessimism that is discussed, especially in North American Black Studies departments and, and continental philosophy these days. These conversations did not invent the notion of Afro-pessimism. The notion of Afro-pessimism is a little older than that. It's a concept that emerged in the post-Cold War era. And it was it designated an attitude in the fields of international relations and geopolitics to designate a group of scholars or um, diplomats who did not believe in the possibility for redress regarding the continent of Africa and especially sub-Saharan Africa. The idea was that this continent was doomed because of its cultural inaptitude to embrace political liberalism and market economy. So a group of right-wing, especially right-wing journalists and, and, and politists, political theorists, strongly believed in this Afro-pessimistic attitude. Mm -hmm. But throughout the years, the, the, this notion shifted and it was, I think, in a way by mistake, <laughs> embraced by a historian named Saidia Hartman, an African-American historian named Saidia Hartman. And this notion of Afro-pessimism was meant to designate a situation, the situation especially of African-Americans today, their intellectual attitudes towards uh, the world. And also an interpretation of uh, American society according to the idea that it doesn't offer for Black people the possibility of humanizing themselves despite dominant discourse of emancipation, freedom, and continuing progress for these groups of people. And in the book, what I try to say is that this attitude, which is very often in the literature, the rebutals of Afro-pessimism, which is of, often, very often um, defined or um, summarized as a post Barack Obama melan melancholy, right? right. <laughs> the, yeah. This sort of realization that the promises of the Obama era, with the rise of the the second, the the the, the first phase of the Black Lives Matter movement, and and, and so on, um, that this moment, this Black liberalism, wasn't very fruitful in solving working class and middle class black America's problems. Uh -huh. But actually what I'm trying 
to say in the book and especially in the introduction of the book is that this pessimistic attitude, which more simply answers this question, this very simple question, is there a chance for integration for black people in majority white countries? You have a very large portion of black intellectuals during the last two centuries, the past two centuries, who answered no to that question, who believed that Black autonomy was the only way forward. And it includes authors that who are often heralded as integrationists or believers in American exceptionalism, such as W.E.B. Du Bois, because we very often read him through uh, Souls of the White Folk, he, his book uh, uh, that dates back to the very early 20th century. But about three decades later, he would change his mind, right? Uh, when he would leave the NAACP for diverging, uh, diverging opinions, the NAACP being the oldest pro-civil rights organization in the United States that he contributed to found. In an article in 1933, if I remember correctly, in uh, the journal Crisis, which is the NAACP's journal, uh, its main publication, he writes that he did not believe in the capacity for white America to accept integrate or assimilate Black people. He do not believe anymore in the possibility for this integration or assimilation, and he embraces instead Black autonomy and self-sufficiency as a strategy. He even rehabilitates a figure that he's well known for having, for, for hating, for despising the figure of the Black nationalist Marcus Garvey, right? Oh, wow. We often have this grand narrative of Garvey versus Du Bois, right? Oh. The savage Black nationalist versus the intellectual, smart Pan-African. But actually, oh. we do not include in our narrative this sort of redemption arc <laughs> in which yeah. uh, Du Bois a few years later says, well, actually, this Garvey guy was not that wrong because many white Americans hate us and maybe we should, yeah. maybe we should uh, develop another form of politics. And the same with Aimé Césaire we discussed earlier, right? The invention of negritude has to do with the necessity that Césaire uh, felt to find a way that he calls, he, he, he says in one of his very early texts, in the second text, he ever uh, published, he says that uh, engaging a dialogue with uh, French communism and the socialist and revolutionary movement, he says, but for us to be a revolutionary is not enough. We must be Negro revolutionaries, Black revolutionaries. We need to take those two things together and we cannot dissolve ourselves into this generic working class project, right? And mm -hmm. all those elements which express a form of pessimism towards white civil society, white political, even progressive political organizations have been for centuries, right? Its oldest, like, powerful manifestation be being the Haitian revolution itself. This form of pessimism manifested as the backbone of the Black radical tradition at large, I think. Um, this very simple idea that assimilation will not be conquered or will not be conquered without gathering mm -hmm. a a very massive amount of autonomous power was, I think, and, and, and still is in a way, 
transformed, of course, um, it mutated uh, throughout the decades. But I think it is a idea you can pin and track down throughout the history of Black radical thought. That's a, a wonderful genealogy. Thank you so much, Professor Norman. The, the issue of the right-wing origins of the contemporary iteration of Afro-pessimism is fascinating because they're also the sort of people who refer to different parts of Africa as failed states, whereas I think the implication... Exactly, exactly. Act, the implication, actually, of, of your new book is that, you know, Western European and U.S. countries are failed states, and they're failed states because they <laughs> are, are completely incapable of recognizing their complicity institutionally and infrastructurally, as well as interpersonally, in slavery and racism. You know, the new attempts to look at the Industrial Revolution in Britain, so-called, which could never have happened without slavery. Although the focus is always on the British economy being lifted out of penury and hell as a consequence of new machinery. So, Prof, I wanted to um, take you further on this because one of the, the great things in your book is to engage as well with the contemporary crisis of critical race theory and the way in which there is an hysteria that is across the political spectrum in France, as you explained to us, right? It's in Le Nouvel Observateur, it's in Liberation, just as much as it's in Macron making this point about the left, of which I am, you know, very much a member, as it were, is just as complicit with this racism as the right. But you, you've explained that very well. And there is this absolute hysteria on the part of the Republican Party in the United States over the teaching of critical race theory. And one of the, I'm going to shut up in a second, but one of the principal things that I think critical race theory is actually about and that is completely denied by these critics is looking at the very constitutional basis to racism and inequality, to focus on legal instruments and the philosophies impelling them. Have I got that right? Absolutely, absolutely. And that's why I introduced critical race theory in the conversation within this book, even if it is a book that is mainly an Afro-pessimism as well as as black male studies, and especially Afro-pessimism in authors like Frank Wilderson or Jared Sexton, those authors are not very versed in, in critical race theory. But I think you find structural uh, similarities between the theories you find in the main founder of critical race theory in America, that is to say Derrick Bell, and those more contemporary authors such as Wilderson. Um, and this is, of course, this notion of pessimism that Derek Bell expresses very clearly in his book titled Faces at the Bottom of the Well, in which he expresses the idea I just mentioned that this narrative of progress is incorrect, that this narrative of progress, especially in America, is a sort of uh, uh, false ideal. And this is precisely, as I show in the book, what is under attack. The attack that started with religious conservatives, right? Uh, Baptist churches who attacked, of course, this discourse for being a race discourse, but using the following rhetoric that this pessimism was contradicting the gospel because the gospel is not about pessimism, but about hope. And so, therefore, there is a command for Black people, a sort of obligation for Black people to remain hopeful yeah. towards the white majority. There will be deliverance. There will be deliverance. Exactly. Exactly. And I think that's an interesting element that we find that we can find in uh, critical race theory, Afro-pessimism, black male studies, that 
shows that optimism can actually be used in this context as a tool for domination and as a very powerful ideology um, to remain faithful in the society that oppresses you is actually a very very powerful tool in the end in the hands of the oppressor and as you said this is something that has been recognized all throughout the western world of course america was I think the place that started this all, but it also happened in um, the UK and especially in in France, as even uh, President Macron himself, not unlike President Trump, um, publicly denounced what is called uh, in the French context, context decolonialism, the decolonialism. Uh, which is the French version of critical race theory. It shares the same characteristics, uh, but with this specific local characteristic that is that it is very often mixed with uh, two, I'd say, core evils. The two core evils being uh, Islamism and racialism. <laughs> and I think the uh, the first one designates more often than not North African people, and the second one Black people. Right? Some of them are Islamists, some others are racialists, but both are menacing the republic. Both are uh, sort of undermining French values from within, and. I think this attack, it was a moment, it was a moment. Today, the um, priorities changed, but it's, I think it's interesting to see how the discourse changes and evolves. As I, I said recently, I haven't read the book and I, I don't think I will read it because I, it's probably uh, pure pile of garbage, but one of the French intellectual who led the charge against critical race theory and decolonialism in France, a guy named Pierre-André Taguieff, um, just uh, wrote a book in which he denounces, now I think it is something that like left-wing Palestinism, right? Something like that. So he uses the events in Gaza right now, throw them in the mix and find a continuity between critical race theory, Islamism, and of course, pro-Palestinian discourse and political uh, projects. So I think this just has become a very commonly held ideology, especially in French right-wing or center-right uh, academia, and even center-left, as you, as, you, as you mentioned, but also in the British and American public spheres. Yeah, big, big time. And um, I wonder... Um, Prof, if we could also look at some uh, related questions that you address in the book about gender and class, and you regard the book as in part a contribution to black male studies, could we look at the gender issues and then perhaps the class ones? I know these things are intertwined, but just for the purposes of explication. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, so... My intervention, I think, is quite uncommon in the in, in the book because usually when you put gender in a conversation like that, in conversation that started on race, that started about race, uh, the move, the very common move, the move you learn at school is to say, hey, let's put gender in the mix, so what about women? <laughs> but that's not the move here. Add add women <laughs> and stir, right? Was the old expression. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, that's not that's not the move here uh, mm. because the Afro pessimist movement has been accused to center 
too much on males. It has been accused to center too much on males, especially given the, its ties with the Black Lives Matter moment, which was centered around the violent killing of Black men by the police. So a certain discourse existed about our centering or our denouncing those police killings of black men being unjust because of the existence, which of course no one want to deny, the existence of same kind of police police killings targeting black women. But the problem is the overwhelming majority of these killings are actually targeting men. And there are every reason to to believe that they are targeted because they are both black and men. We know the history of criminalizing black men as violent predators, as super predators to use. I think it was Hillary Clinton's words and, you know, a whole stereotyping that dates back slave medicine that dates back uh, the history of the plantation that dates back the history of colonialism in sub-Saharan Africa. The danger that represents black men has been established in those racist discourses for centuries. Nevertheless, a part of, say, Afro-pessimist critique tends to, I think, overlook this gender dimension, this gender dimension that, in which Black men are overwhelmingly assimilated with the enemy, whereas Black women are overwhelmingly assimilated with a territory to conquer, right? With uh, species to assimilate through sexual subjugation and also, say, um, house subjugation. Yes. And so you're trying specificity. To... I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, yes, I, I think those specificities has been overlooked in the discourse of Afro-pessimism under the guise of two strategies, right? The first is something I refer to, it's anecdotal, but I think it has a certain telling element, right? It, it works as a symptom, I think. In 2000, uh, a black British theorist, very influential in the field of Afro-pessimism named David Marriott published a book titled On Black Men. It's a book centered around a phenomenon interpretation of violence against black men and some phenomena of dehumanizing black men within popular and even elite culture such as contemporary art and stuff. So this book has been very influential on Afro-pessimism as a movement to theorize the libidinal dimension of anti-Blackness and Negrophobia, that is to say how it relates to desire, how we tend to desire, for instance, the Black man body, how we tend to fantasize, for instance, the black penis that uh, we all know, and some, which is something on which Fanon wrote in his first book, Black Skins, White Mask. So the reception of this book is very telling. You have some people who said, well, and that's how they express it, right? When I first saw this, this title, this book, I wasn't very pleased. But then when I started reading the book, I told to myself, well, 
this book has very interesting arguments for black queers and black feminists. And you have several people within the field of Afro-pessimism who do not see any problem telling publicly that even black men are facing this situate this life and death situation at the hands of the police and at the end of vigilantes. A book dedicated to the plight of black men is only interesting if it serves other demographics, such as black women or black queer people, meaning that supposedly black men are not queer by definition or the, are the opposite of, of queer by definition, which is weird. And the second strategy is a strategy that simply erases the notion of gender entirely and says that blackness is this sort of flat dimension of dehumanization that is experienced equally by black men gender non-conforming people, you name it, right? But I think that's not true. That's not what the, 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 the data, the data uh, shows. And I think that's doing disservice to our understanding of violence targeting Black people if we do not try to understand it more uh, finely and more precisely. And before we move on to class, uh, Prof, I wanted to ask you about Fanon whom you've mentioned a couple of times there. You've been deeply involved in his work and his legacy, his trajectory, uh, since his passing away. I wonder if you could reflect for a moment on the importance of Fanon's work, both in the Francophone world, but more broadly, especially with reference to these gender issues and gender and race issues. Yes, sure. So... Fanon was a trained psychiatrist, a philosopher, a political theorist, who was born in 1925. That is to say, he is 99 years old. <laughs> Almost. <laughs> um, <laughs> so we are we are going to celebrate his anniversary next 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 year. Um, and who died in 1961, a few months before witnessing the liberation and independence of Algeria, which is a country he fought for in the Algerian Liberation Army, the, the, the Liberation Front, Le Front de Libération Nationale Algérien, worked for them as a diplomat, worked for them as a educator, worked for them as a writer. Um, I said as a diplomat that is to say he was their diplomat in Ghana attending Pan-African conferences, uh, trying to build bridges between North Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, so he is an interesting figure, I think, in terms of his place within the history of Pan-Africanism. He's the author of a very influential book on that front titled um, the Wretched of the Earth, Les Danes de la Terre, which is a book that was a mandatory read when you joined the Black Panther, which is a book whose Che Guevara translated some chapters of, uh, which is a book, uh, Ali Shariati, the um, leading Iranian liberation theologian uh, I think translated or at least wrote, uh, 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 read, sorry, very, very closely. So he had a huge influence on many liberation movement throughout the second half of the 20th century. But the, the, the part of his work that interests um, the movement of Afro-pessimism is actually his first book titled, as I said, Black Skin's White Mask, a book he wrote when he was around 25, right? He intended this book to be his MD, right? His medical 
thesis for his thesis for his medical degree, but it was not recognized as an acute medical work. So he had to to shift his topic completely because it's definitely not a work of medicine, even if he makes use of some psychoanalytical and some psychiatric vocabulary. It is an examination of the evolution of Black people within a majority white society and the types of neurosis, the type of forms of anguish, the types of form of desperation that arise in the mind of a young Black man or young Black woman who shifts from a majority Black place, such as the Caribbean. Fanon is from Martinique, just like Aimé Césaire, just like Paulette Nardal, and when you end up in a majority white situation such as uh, uh, France just after World War II. Uh, so this exploration of the mind of the black man, the black woman, and also the formation of racism within the mind of the white majority is something that fascinated generations and generations of, of, of scholar. And um, Afro-pessimism is, I think, the last generation to embrace these ideas, insisting more specifically on the psychoanalytical dimension. They're more critical of the political radicalism of the second half of his work. I think they believe it is too utopian. I, I think they believe it is not focused enough on the notion of blackness that is so prevalent in the first half of this work. But I think they, I, I, let's let's just say I do not share their interpretation. Right. <laughs> but this is another this is this is another another story. Well, on the subject of of class, one of the I think evocative, provocative moments in your your new book, Darkening Blackness, is when you turn on its head a formulation about the intercalculation of class and race that originated with Stuart Hall. I wonder if you might talk to us a wee bit about this intersection of class and race, because of course like all these things, there are con continuities across time and place as well as discontinuities, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Yes. So I wanted to insist on something that, as you said, Stuart Hall overlooked considering race as the modality under which class is lived and experienced, if I remember correctly. Right. And I say, no, is the other way around. Uh, class is a modality under which race is lived and experienced because race is, and this is an idea that I borrow from Afro-pessimism and also Black male studies, because race decides of your belonging or not belonging to humanity. So I think this dimension has to be understood as the sort of fundamental plane on which class can be built. It has been overlooked, especially in Stuart Hall and other authors of the same vein, the same generation. And I recognize their contributions, of course, but I think the way they approach race as a form of identity is a mistake. I do not believe race to be an identity. I do not believe it can be approached through this paradigm of performativity. I really think it is an overimposed, to use, again, a Fanonian uh, vocabulary. I think it is an overimposed set of characteristics that contribute to define 
whether you belong to, to the human race or not. I think the characteristics, the defining characteristics of blackness are not simply cultural characteristics, are not simply cultural elements that signify a form of belonging. I believe they mark not even inferiority, but radical exteriority from the majority experience and livelihood. And hence I they think, must be connected to class formation and experience. Yeah. Yes. Yes. It doesn't mean it doesn't mean at all that class is not important or is a secondary dimension. I would say the other way around. Mm -hmm. I think, for instance, there is a very deep argument to be made that relates slavery to the present day. Because this is an argument that uh, Afro-pessimists are making. The continuity between the reality of the transatlantic slave trade and today's situation. And very often the rebuttal is the following one. You are just considering the experience of African-Americans and their continuity. You are so focused on transatlantic slavery because you are obsessed with Black Americans, but actually Blackness is way more complex. It is transnational. But my answer to that is that if you consider, for instance, West Africa, maybe the situation is even more connected to the time of the transatlantic slave trade than when you just consider North America. Why? Because the types of relations, of economic relations between uh, African countries, between African kingdoms and uh, Western states, they began with the transatlantic slave trade. When people say, you know, this old racist trope, black people sold black people, that's why you had slaves. Well, said this way, it is a racist trope, but there is a dimension of truth. And this dimension of truth is only understood through this notion of class. It is not just black selling black people, it is a upper class kings, lords, selling competing uh, 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 groups of people in Africa or uh, trying to selling political opponent, political rivals, right? right? Trying to weaken, to weaken competing groups of other black people using the money, using the resources offered by uh, white countries and kingdoms at their service. But at the same time, it is also an epoch, a time when the circle of debt crippling Africa started. Right. Because they, white people use credit relating to those slaves. That is to say, they gave them more money, they gave them more weapons, they gave them more uh, black powder for the slaves under the promise that they will bring more slaves later to sort of imprison them in the cycle of bringing more and more and more slaves. Isn't it the same form of dependency, form of dependency that still exists today and with the same disconnect between, of course, not everywhere in Africa, right? But you still have, in some countries, elite governments completely disconnected from their own people and ready to sell their own people 
to the Western capital for money and excess. Oh, right? and of course, the other thing is, in many cases, these are oligarchic groups that had connections either directly or through earlier family members with the occupying forces of colonialism and imperialism, right? I mean, absolutely, absolutely. This and the disposability of the black working class and the black lumpen proletariat is the same, is the same. And it has been always enforced by this logic or this underlying assumption, this liberal economy that is, I think, the, the, the most basic but important notion to understand that uh, Afro-pessimism expresses the idea of a general loss of the value of black life. And I think that is black one life is disposable. elements throughout your book, and that is the struggle to be deemed human. Absolutely, absolutely. This this is something that is often overlooked in Fanon's work, especially in Black Skin's White Mask, right? Many people know, if they know Hegel, they necessarily know this. This is the only thing that uh, people know about Hegel, the struggle for recognition, right? The, the, the struggle between the... the uh, master and the slave for recognition. This is something that Fanon rewrites completely. Usually, the story tells at some point the enslaved fights back against the master, and if they win, they become human. They are recognized as human. But that's not how Fanon puts it in his book. In Fanon, humanity starts with the desire to be recognized. That is to say, this is not the recognition by the other that provides you with your actual humanity. You're already human if you desire to build this connection with a community. But the fight is necessary to institutionalize this humanity. The problem is not that we are not human per se. It is the overwhelming set of apparatus that is created to make us live this fantasy that we are less than human. And one of the things in Hegel that is a huge problem for indigenous peoples of different kinds is the notion that in order to have legitimacy as the owner of territory, you must, in inverted commas, improve it. You must overcome nature. You must transform it. And you must make ongoing semiotic marks in order to indicate your civilization. I think that's another aspect that's overlooked in the incredible ethnocentrism and developmentalism of Hegel, but also how valuable that is as an insight into dominant philosophical, political and economic norms over the last 200 years since he wrote those things. So I, I think that, you know, what, you're, what you're saying is incredibly, incredibly valuable. Prof, I've got a couple more questions, and then I'd like to throw it open to you to add anything you might wish to, to do. Is that okay as a way of proceeding? Absolutely. Lovely. So my first question is this. Could you tell us a little bit about how you do the work you do? It's obviously involving deep reading, hermeneutic investigation, but you're also thinking about social relations and history. So could you tell us, you know, when Professor Ajari sits down to write a book, how on earth does he do it? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's, a, that's a very good question. That's a very good question. How do I do it? 
Um, I think I I'm driven by inspiration. I think mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, if I'm not inspired, I can I, I, I can write a paper, for instance. If I'm if I'm not if I'm not really inspired. Uh, so it's a it's a form of technical it's a form of technical work something I I learned throughout the years to do because sometimes you have to force yourself into doing something because you have a deadline. Like like this podcast, right? <laughs> this, I you I mean I hope I was a little a little inspired, but your your. <laughs> <laughs> your your, your uh, 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 public will will tell, uh, <laughs> but usually the method if it's a, if it's a if it's a method, it's just reading, of course, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. reading and writing immediately if I have an idea about what I'm what I'm reading. So I have those notebooks. And I write as soon as I have an idea. And even if I do not have an idea, I cover my books with notes. Actually, the first blank page, the first blank page of every book is covered with minuscule, minuscule notes that I make in the book so that I can use them as sort of points of reference uh, so every book I have ever read is heavily marked. So if I remember something, I can go back and use my notes, remix them, and include them in my argument. So it ends up being this form of collage of uh, ideas that I find relevant. And especially for this book, um darkening blackness it's 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 a, it's a it's a weird book because it was first published in french and it was really meant to be an introduction to contemporary debates within black studies and black philosophy especially in america so the point was to make all those arguments, all those pretty obscure arguments, all this pretty obscure language within the field of Afro-pessimism, to make all those things as clear as possible to an uneducated public, not yeah. uneducated in general, right, but uneducated mm -hmm. in matter, in matters of black thought and black history, history of ideas, if you will. So uh, the point was to clarify those debates. The point was to sort of translate, to sort of emancipate myself from this often unproductive habit we have within the field of uh, continental philosophy, which is the field I was trained in, and to sort of use the tools of the history of philosophy instead to resituate the arguments, to use some comparatism to show here is how the Afro-pessimistic argument differs from other philosophical arguments. The idea was really to introduce those notions to the, the, the a vast readership, but putting my own personal spin, sort of pointing to some inconsistencies, trying to introduce new concepts sometimes when I thought it could contribute to the conversation. So yes, th that that's the idea. So I think, yes, I, I'm trained, as I said, as a continental philosopher, but I was trained in uh, mostly in places like uh, um, France, places like Belgium, places like Luxembourg, which is a small but very heavily influenced by Germany, a small country very influenced by Germany. So um, my way of using the tools of continental philosophy, I think, are different from how Americans or even British people would, would use it. 
I try to be clearer than they tend that than they tend to do. I hope I <laughs> I hope it is it is the case. I hope I'm not too delusional about myself here. But I want to make my arguments uh, uh, clear without sacrificing the sort of elements of creativity or uh, the element of dialectical reasoning that is so interesting, I think, in, in continental philosophy. Well, thank you for that. And I really think you've achieved that both in the French original and in the translation of the new book. Uh, my last question before handing over to you to conclude, Prof. Norman, is to create an imaginary scenario, a bit like an analytic philosopher would do, <laughs> right? <laughs> because we all know that imagining you're a duck on a boat with one other duck and one piece of bread to eat and deciding who gets the bread is the real way to understand the world, right? We we know this. So, uh, yes. no, in all seriousness, my imaginary scenario finds a, a young person knocking on your door in Edinburgh, uh, in Scotland, and saying, Dear Professor Ajari, I, uh, you may not have noticed me, but I was in your class. I'm very inspired. I'm just finishing my undergrad. I want to do a doctorate on black philosophy. How should I go about it? What should I read and where should I go? Hmm. Oh, that's that's a very that's a very interesting question as well. Um, so, I think I, I strongly believe in the necessity of learning the history of this discipline, the institutionalization. Institu institutionalization of black philosophy is a very recent phenomenon, but black thought, and when I say black thought, I mean ideas and theories written by black people who were discussing or claiming their blackness as part of their reasoning. It is an old phenomenon. So I would advise them to read some key works throughout the last three centuries, things like Kuguano, things like Lauda Echiano, things like Antenor Firmin, the Haitian anthropologist of the 19th century, of course, uh, Le Baron de Vatet, another Haitian theorist, uh, the Negritude movement, uh, and probably lots of others, the Bois, Du Bois, Fanon, just to master, or if not master, to familiarize themselves with this history, because I think that's what we lack. We, we lack this sense of historical continuity, which is tragic because this is precisely a key element that the slave trade and also colonialism in Africa tried to, to, to achieve, right? To destroy our sense of historical continuity, mm -hmm. replacing it with a sort of dominant narrative, excluding our intellectual and historical prowess. So I would say that this is the, 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 main, the main thing to engage in this historical rediscovery, which is also, I think, an inspiring thing to do, especially because apart from a few figures such as Du Bois or Fanon and maybe uh, uh, a few others, Alain Locke in America also, many of those authors do not have a huge secondary literature attached to their names. Uh, Paulette Narda is, I think, a good example as she just, there's a small, a small, small literature and this literature, I think, at least 
in my view, is often often misguided. So we have lots and lots of work to do to uncover those things, to uncover those traditions, and to, I think, write the history of uh, uh, those ideas, whether they serve our contemporary political agenda or not. Right. And that takes Even us back to where we where we began when you talked about absolutely, absolutely. I believe in the interest in in writing also on authors that may look like us, but that may not really think like us. For instance, I I, I like I like uh, to 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 read and to think and to to teach about George Schuyler. Uh, who is a, a, a black conservative, and I do not agree with anything that Schiller write uh, and, and thought, wrote and thought. But I think it is so fascinating to to discover his ideas and, and and thought. And I think it may be an interesting avenue, right? Also for the future of the of the of the discipline. Thank you. That's wonderful advice. And I think it would encourage any young person to keep going, acknowledging that it will be a struggle, as is any PhD. So, Prof. Ajari, I'd like to conclude, as I said, by inviting you to add anything you wish to the discussion that we've had. Well, what could I add? Um... No, I think I, I said I said every everything I had to say. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, listen, it's been a great privilege to talk to you. Thank you so so much. It was wonderful. Oh, thank you, thank you for the invitation. Really, I, I really appreciate it. I'm very grateful.